Today, we'll discuss the growing crime of sextortion. What is it and why you should be aware of it? Then we may be living through the period where there are more people alive than there ever will be. We'll tackle the debate around underpopulation. Then we'll close out with some listener voicemails. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, big news in the New York Times. Yes, indeed. Tell us about it. My book, The Canceling of the American Mind, is now out next month, which is crazy. October 19th, 17th. And we made the Times' 33 nonfiction books to read this fall, which was pretty cool to see my name in the Times. That's a first for sure. Not that I'm really a regular Times reader, but I admit that it's still... Got oh, me a little bit dig, excited. Giving no, you, I'm saying, I'm saying. You can't even, dig them if they're giving you a shout out. No, I'm saying, I, I, I'm <laughs> fully admitting that it excited me, despite the fact that I might have thought otherwise. Um, but it was it was very cool. Um, so please, anyone who's interested in the book, uh, consider pre-ordering it. I also did the audio book, so you can hear my lovely voice read eight and a half hours of that must have been culture exhausting. horror stories. That was awful. And I also made the mistake of doing it while working full time and during the weekends in the summer. So I was like, what happened to this summer? Where did it go? Well, I spent it locked in a bunker, but I brought my cat one day, which was kind of fun. She helped with the audio engineering front. Anyways, so pre-order it's on Amazon. Well, New York Times wasn't the only New York publication that that uh, your name showed up in. Oh, that was just the worst transition of all time, but we'll go with it. <laughs> uh, you wrote an article about sextortion. Yes. And uh, I think this will be interesting to a lot of parents and educators in the audience, and, or just anybody who's got a social media account. Well, why don't you start with the story of Waylon Schaefer? And I think through that story, we can learn about this new phenomenon of crime. Yeah. So I actually, this the origin of this article was a KTVQ news report from up in Montana, um, like a local news station. And I saw this video of this father that just broke my heart talking about his son, who was a normal, healthy, well-adjusted teenager who ended up getting caught up unbeknownst to his family one night out of nowhere in this sextortion scheme, which is essentially when these actually very savvy and advanced extortionists find a young person online, message them, typically a young boy presenting as a girl, and essentially seduce them into sending... They send a photo, the boy sends a photo back, and then they say, oh, you know, your life's over now. We have this. We're not really who we said we were. Send us $1,000 or this is going to go to your principal or go to the college that you told us that you were applying to or this or that. And they start hounding these kids who often don't have access to bank accounts in the middle of the night, often at odd hours because they're on their phones while their parents are sleeping. And in this case of Waylon Schaefer, his father, Jason, His son took his own life as a result of this because of just the overwhelming dread that he felt as a result of this blackmail within a day of this whole thing transpiring. And when I heard his story, it just absolutely broke my heart. So this is, again, um, KTVQ News' interview of Jason, who I later spoke to myself. Waylon was definitely a different breed. And I knew it from the time he was three months old. Like, wow, look what I got. That kid lived the best life a little Montana boy ever could have. It was a normal morning, and that's one thing I'm really happy about, that 
in this house, you did never go to bed or leave the house every day without saying, I love you, have a good day. I had, I had three minutes to see what was going through his head. So that's his silver uh, Ram charger sitting out there and I noticed it was gone. And that's when I knew immediately, like something is not right. I knew something backed him into a corner, but it just took a month to find out what it really was. He didn't want to do what he did, but basically they threatened him to the point that they basically told him like, hey, we're sending him out one by one right now. I firmly believe he thought that everything was out there. So before he drove up Nine Mile and sat down underneath the tree and did his business, he uh, he deleted his entire phone. There was no text messages. There was no there was no apps. There was nothing. They don't care about anybody else's life. They don't. Uh, you know, I, I wish they had a different heart, but they. I mean, they're at the point where they there's been kids that say, "Hey, I'm just going to go kill myself if you keep bugging me," and they say, "Go ahead, your life's already over." All I had to do is get on his phone and send those guys a nice little selfie with a middle finger and say, leave him alone, and it would have been over with. It would have been over with. It's the only way I can really avenge it, honestly. You know what I mean? It's the only way I can, it's, it's good medicine, like I told you. It's the only way I can, I can feel like I'm doing something for him. Like, people need to talk about it. You can't say enough about it. You cannot spread the, the word enough. Our kids are just so naive. Even listening back to this, like, chokes me up a little bit. It's, when I first heard this, single story i thought you know this this sounds like a, a freak incident and something totally tragic and then i looked it up and there's story after story after story of young men who this exact same thing is happening to and whose parents are brave enough to actually put themselves out there who are getting a lot of flack as parents and being criticized which is just really heartbreaking to me they've been through enough but are brave enough to put themselves and their family and their face and their name out there to warn other families. This is absolutely not an isolated incident. And I give Jason so much credit for speaking out. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the the scope of this. So what are the sort of age ranges that this tends to happen to? And how are, how are people finding that? Yeah. So this is an organized crime ring that um, centers in Nigeria and the Ivory Coast. Um, and there are people who have really just systematically just gone for 17 to um, 13 to 17 year old boys. Typically, they seem to be the most susceptible. They're contacting them on Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp. And the problem in terms of actually figuring out how many suicides there are is that this, as Jason said, oftentimes the parents have no idea what happened. This came out of absolutely nowhere. The only reason he knows what happened is because the FBI did a, a scrub of his child's phone and ended up finding that out. And so he spent a month wondering what in the world went wrong. And that's the explanation that he was given along with um, one of the other parents I spoke to as well, who just, they didn't know for weeks. So there are probably countless more stories of unexplained suicides, particularly of young boys as a result of this. But the National Center um, for Missing and Exploited Children has a cyber tip line. They say the number of these cases doubled between 2019 and 2021, um, and they expect that those numbers have gone up even more since, especially since young people have been even more online and especially developing their sexuality online post-pandemic for the kids who you know went through lockdown with a cell phone and hormones. And they have 250,000 reports of online enticement since 2016 and are also aware of more than a dozen suicides in just this past year alone as a result of this scheme. The FBI has put out a warning. And then just one thing, since it's so hard to like put the national number on this, I found this very interesting. The Tampa police came out recently in partnership with the FBI to warn about this on a local level. And just in Tampa, in the Tampa area, that reports to this police department, there were 15 cases of 
just minors having this happen to them just this summer. So, And those are the people that are reporting. And this is one locality. So this is happening on a mass scale. We'll never know how many people just blocked the person. We'll never know how many kids spent days like not sleeping out of fear that this that that all of their personal information got leaked out and so this is a this is a wide scale problem and one that I've not heard enough attention paid to yeah the only number i could find and maybe you have different more updated numbers was from 2021 uh, 2021 from the fbi they said uh they came up with a number of 3000 us minors primarily boys were victims and like as you said like obviously that they They're must be getting it's that number exploding in the past yeah and literally over the past couple months like i spoke to three parents for this story and all three of them their child died within the last year and like typically when you talk about something as sensitive as this like i i um i spoke to parents whose children had um like weed induced psychosis it takes people a while to process this and actually start talking about this and i was shocked by how raw and how recent like Jason's son died in December and he's he was willing to speak to me for this article, which I just can't even underscore how much I admire that. That's That takes a lot of guts, especially because it's embarrassing for your kid. It's embarrassing for your, your family. But this is something that, you know, these kids get just like the fear of of their entire lives crumbling around them. They're worried that if they go to their parents that they're going to get in trouble Jason's son desperately called a friend for money that night, but you know he didn't have access to a bank account. And this is a really terrifying thing. And I have to say, like I'm typically pretty good at distancing myself from subjects when I when I do these interviews. Not in you know you it's it's taxing. And this is one of the few times where like I hung up the phone and I just couldn't help but crying. This was such a a raw underreported issue. And so I'm, I wanted to make sure that we touched on the podcast as well, just to get parents alerts up on this issue. And so give us a sense of the texture of these conversations. So, you know, maybe even read it to us. Like, what does it sound like when somebody reaches out to the kids? What are the kids saying back? Yeah. I'm aware that like in these cases, some of the kids are like coming up with some money, but not all. And how are the people on the other end of this responding to that? So essentially they'll find a kid and spend enough time doing their homework. It's not like the Nigerian prince emails from days past. And and they'll follow a few of their friends and they'll they'll search in their Instagram following all the people with their last names. So they know who their families are. They'll find out the name of the principal of their school. They'll they'll really do a deep dive and have their homework ready. And then they'll approach this kid and figure out, you know, like what they like based on their social media and they're posing as a attractive girl and actually curating a social media profile to go along with it. It's not just some random profile picture. And following oftentimes a couple of their friends as well, just to seem as though there's someone actually in their universe. Um, And often will say, I would go to this high school or that high school. And they'll start, you know, like puffing up their ego and asking about football or this or that. And it's late at night and pretty quickly turn the conversation sexual via text. And then sometimes they'll send a, an explicit photo that they pull from the internet of a girl. Other times they'll actually use doctored um, footage from porn sites and and FaceTime them as well. And then almost instantaneously, as soon as they get anything back, which they almost always solicit something back, instantaneously the conversation turns. And it's, we have your information. Here's here's your principal. Here's your parent. Here's your this. Here's your that. Like all the all the places that they know are vulnerable for this kid. 
and send us, you know, some, I've heard anything from $500 to $5,000 is what they're asking these kids for. Send it to us now, or we're going to start sending this out one by one. And then they start sending oftentimes doctored screenshots, sending it out, even if they hadn't. And kids will start to say like, Oh, I, I'm going to kill myself. Like, don't do this to me. And they, and they'll taunt them into it and say, go for it. Your life's already over. I don't care. And oftentimes that's actually happening. In fact, the FBI just extradited two brothers, um, Samuel and Samson Ogoshi from Nigeria, who were 22 and 20. And these brothers were complicit in the suicide of a teen in Michigan who took his life as a result. My sense was in reading some of these articles that there does also seem to be a growing domestic counterpart to this. So there was some kind of um, activity in Los Angeles. What do you know about this? Like on the receiving, on, on the sort of extortion side of things. Yes. So one of the mothers that I spoke to actually um, got a little tiny bit of justice in her son's death recently um, in Los Angeles. A man named Jonathan Cassie, who is a 25-year-old, was serving effectively as the money mule for um, sextortionists in Africa and getting the water money wired to him domestically and then sending it off and also um, was engaging in some of these conversations himself. So there was a bust of him domestically, but it seems like pretty much every major case points back to these extortionists abroad. Um, and this, the hotspot is definitely Africa. And so, and when you were reporting this, like, is there any sense of like any effective tools that parents had to have at their disposal or schools or law enforcement? Like what, what should people listening to this do about this? The number one thing is if it happens, block them and do not respond, period. I mean, in every instance that I encountered in researching this article, these people don't actually leak the photos, even if they said they have, even if they're sending screenshots, because there's no money in gain for them in terms of actually exposing people. So it's often bluff, perhaps not always, but the best course of action is to block I spoke to a mom who's an educator who had parental controls on her kid's phone and he downloaded an app late at night and died four hours later. So it's it's hard to say how to actually prevent it from happening. The thing that I would suggest, um, you know, as a young person who grew up on the internet and after speaking to all these parents about what they would have done differently is a very explicit conversation with your child at when they get a phone at a young age and tell them, if anything happens to you, the internet is a scary place. You're a child. I understand that things may happen. And if they do, and if you're scared, and if you're worried, I will not judge you. You can come to me. We can go straight to law enforcement and you don't even have to tell me what happened, but I will be there for, as a resource. Wake me up at any hour of the night. I don't care. You're not going to be judged. I'm your advocate. And I think that's the conversation that Almost every parent says, of course, it's true. Like all, th all three of the parents that I spoke to said, I could not care less if my child had done that. If they were in that degree of crisis, all I would have done was be there for them and help them take care of this and, and get it solved. And that's, that's the problem is it's such an explicit conversation and such a specific one that I think that parents need to have of like, it's the fear of judgment that that gets these kids to just yeah. fold in on themselves. And and parents, even if they know that to be the fact that they would be by their kid's side no matter what, need to make that expressly clear to them. What's interesting is there was a Reuters article from June that talked about the use of artificial intelligence here, not just in the crafting of the message itself, mm -hmm. which it seems like AI is being used potentially to make these 
like any other unwanted solicitations that people are getting, like to try to make them as effective as possible and sometimes scraping the internet for data, like who are your relatives, et cetera, but also creating fake photos. So, you know, they're basically, some of these criminals are using AI to take non-sexually explicit photos, make them appear sexually explicit, and then threatening people that they're going to release those, uh, which adds a whole other wrinkle to this. So even if you do everything right, and you're just like, hey, like, I'm not even going to send you uh, a naked photo, uh, they might threaten that they'll send something out that isn't even real. Yeah, actually, one of the dads I spoke to, um, Brian Montgomery, told me literally the, the day before I spoke to him the night before, he had a parent reach out to him who had seen him speaking about this online, whose child was a 15-year-old boy, I think, um, who was really on the brink of a breakdown as a result of this. And he hadn't even sent a photo. It was a doctored photo of him. It was an AI photo, um, which seemed evident to the the parent. and and this guy had literally talked this 15-year-old down from from this panic and and the same fate that his own child had experienced, which is just, it's crazy. All three of the parents I spoke to were like, oh yeah, just yesterday I heard from someone who, who said that the same thing happened to their kid. Like it's just, it sounds like it's just constant and these people are like receptacles for these stories. It's, it's really shocking. But the AI thing adds a whole nother level but also in a weird sense, I guess, also can provide some comfort to kids as well that, you know, they're not necessarily even going to be blamed for something if it does happen, because that's how how vicious these extortionists are. Man, uh, I mean, just another thing to worry about. And, you know, the, the thing is, like, this is just part of a new wave of a new type of criminal activity. So, like, you know, our producer on this podcast, Mickey, received a message purporting to be for me from another number asking him for, I forget even what it was, but like something around money. And it, and it went to both Mickey, but also our chief of staff, Kate. Uh, and it just came from a totally random number. Hmm. And somehow this person knew that those are two people I worked with and was asking them for money. And, and it's just like, and this kind of stuff is just happening. And, you know, thankfully they were smart enough to know that I don't, return any texts. So it, it couldn't be me. Uh, but <laughs> this is a bad joke for anybody who knows me. But uh, it's funny. I posted it on Instagram uh, saying, look, like anybody out there who receives this from me, you know, be careful. This isn't me. And I, the amount of comments I got is like, I prefer this version of you, the, the one that actually writes me back. <laughs> so uh, it gave me something to think about in my digital communication. It, I guess what it means is I'm not the most responsive texter in the world. But back to more serious matters, educators out there, this should be a part of, I, I don't know if we call the sex education as much as it would be like just digital awareness yeah. and like safety. Like, uh, I think this should be an absolutely crucial part of middle school and high school curriculum, warning kids about the dangers of this kinds of things. Obviously, parents should be brought into that conversation. Parents, you should be having this conversation with your kids. But also if you're adults, like, you know, chances are they're trying these things on all types of people for all different types of reasons. So they're they're probably coming up with as many creative ways as possible to threaten as many people as possible. And obviously children mm-hmm. are most vulnerable. Uh, and that's what's playing out here. Let's talk about population, Ricky. So uh, I said this at the beginning of the episode that we may be living through a period where uh, maybe not today, but at some point in our lifetimes, there will, is very likely to be the most amount of people that ever will exist, ever had existed, and ever will exist. And that's because population has been dropping. So uh, there is this uh, stat called the total fertility rate, 
And fertility has dropped from an average of five births per woman in 1950 to 2.3 births per woman in 2021. And so um, women and families, you know, largely either delaying the decision to have children or not having them at all. Uh, And it looks like the projection, according to the UN, is to hit 2.1 births per woman by 2050. And this is a set off a debate. And and this is happening in the US. We're below replacement value uh, in the US. Uh, Replacement value, that's a sports term, but replacement rate uh, in the US uh, by a pretty significant margin, which we'll get to. And this has touched off a debate, I think, about whether this is a good or a bad thing. Some people are saying, great, like it's good for the environment that we have fewer people. And some other people are saying, well, no, because we're going to have fewer people to take care of the elderly and uh, fewer people to do the things that society needs us to do. Ricky, are you in a camp on this one? I definitely am of two minds on this one, where I think there's just two extremely different narratives playing out in different parts of the world where the developed world is having a legitimate underpopulation problem and the underdeveloped world is probably having pretty much the reverse of it. The birth rates are are still where they used to be growth rates in terms of the countries that are like by 2100, five of the 10 largest countries will be in Africa. Um, and they include Nigeria, Congo, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Egypt. And, you know, potentially economies where women are the least able to provide for more mouths to feed and and more kids that need things. And so I think that there's two completely separate problems that are happening. And there's one side that probably needs to be remedied by, by a more robust childbearing reality in countries like America, perhaps. That's not the most artful way to put that. But um, And then other countries where access to birth control and access to education are still major issues. And, and so I, th- I think we're, we need to be able to be of two minds and tackle both those problems at the same time. But it's interesting to see how some countries are um, dealing with this. One thing that I found very interesting was Changshan County in China is offering a financial incentive for any marriages with brides under the age of 25. And they're apparently looking for, quote, age-appropriate marriage and childbearing. So very overtly trying to undo what was pretty catastrophically done with their one-child policy, which only ended in 2016. This same county has also had subsidies for childcare, education, and fertility. And they're really aggressively going after trying to get people to actually reproduce to the point that taxpayers are, are paying for them to hopefully do so. Um, And just for some context, China, um, now they can have up to three kids, but they still have a record low fertility rate of 1.09 last year. The number of marriages there, the lowest ever, and the average age of first marriage for a woman is 28. So they're really like further ahead of us in this crisis. And this is the point that they're at. So I'm not sure if that's not imminent that that might be coming here. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's this piece from Noah Smith in the No Opinion Substack that we'll link to. And he basically tracks this and, and points to different regions. Obviously, China being, you know, 17.5% of the world's population, the fact that it is at 1.09, it had previously been thought to be 1.7. That's what the government was saying. But it seems like uh, that wasn't true. Surprise. Uh, that is obviously driving a lot of the issue. But obviously, U- U.S. isn't great either. We were at 1.66 in 2021. Uh, and obviously, you need to be above two to replace kids. And the power laws here are very fascinating because um, I talked about how in 
it were slated to hit about 2.1 births per woman by 2050, which is below replacement value. I believe replacement is 2.2. And just to give you a sense of how much, if you go in one direction or the other, this could matter is if the total fertility rate uh, was 2.4 and just stayed at 2.4 until 2100, our global population would reach 16.7 billion. Uh, if it were 2.5, it would be 18.7 billion by 2100. So that's the power of exponential growth, but the exponential numbers go both ways, right? Because mm-hmm. the exponent could bring us in the other direction. Uh, and, you know, we talked about China. The U.S. has a, a slowing um, population growth and, and lower fertility rates. Uh, Japan is often used as the example here and often as a cautionary tale. Their numbers uh, started to decrease in the 2010s. Uh, and its working age population peaked in the 1990s and has fallen by about 15% since then. And I'll quote Noah Smith here, youth culture has waned and cities are choked with old people, Japanese people already straining under an unproductive corporate culture, have to work ever longer hours to support their aging parents. And despite the country's efficient, cheap healthcare system and meager pensions, taxes had to rise to fund both simply because of the age ratio. And one little interesting fact out there for our listeners is there are more adult diapers sold in Japan than children's (laughs) diapers. Huh. Yeah. And not to mention, here in America, we have the entire additional issue of our social security system that we've set up with the assumption that there will be more young people to pay into it. But the reserves that we have right now in it will are set to run out by 2035. um, And at which point we're only going to be able to make 75% of the payout. And the staggering statistic here in terms of like the promises made to American people is that everyone post 2010 is receiving less than they paid in, um, which means they have less disposable income now and they will have less or the people paying in have less disposable income now and they will have less disposable income in retirement as a result of this. So I think, I mean, our financial system is predicated on a higher birth rate. I mean, there's just even the logistical questions of like what happens when people who forego having children age to like the point where they need to be cared for. And, you know, for some of them, that might mean that they have more money saved up to like hire nurses and and get a care home. But like also the imminent industrialization of of old age care, which I think is already a problem in this country, I think is only going to get worse when there are more people with less resources to fall back on. And yeah, I mean, I'm I generally think like I'm not in the Elon Musk camp of like let's repopulate another planet and have like 15 kids with 15 women, but I think there's a a legitimate concern and a legitimate reason to have a conversation as a culture and say like, yeah, actually it might be beneficial for our future and our prosperity to have kids. But then you have people on the other side of the debate where they're like, I'm not going to have a kid with climate change. Like, no, have a kid that'll solve climate change. How about that? That's my thought. (laughs) Well, I want to, I do want to get to the (laughs) other side of the argument, but before we get there, uh, yeah, let's just lay out those arguments as to why this is a bad idea. So um, you talked about one, which is the aging population having no one to care for them. That is already starting to become an issue. Uh, there is this issue that Noah Smith points out, which is asset price appreciation, which is fascinating because anybody who has older parents knows that essentially what happens in this country is you start to accumulate assets over time uh, when you're young to middle-aged to older, and then you largely live off slash sell those assets as you're older to live. 
houses are a good example of this. Like a lot of parents, people listen to this, either at parents or people themselves who've had a bigger house. You sell that bigger house and move into a smaller house. It's very common in this country. And Noah Smith points out that essentially that bargain is in jeopardy when there is just a lot of people at the top end of the funnel who have assets that they're trying to sell, whether they're stocks, houses, et cetera, but there are fewer people at the bottom end of the funnel to pay for those. Uh, and so there could be a deflationary pressure on certain assets in this country, which I thought was an interesting argument. Uh, he also, uh, he said, and to, to point out why he thinks this is an issue, he says, if I had to describe what a shrinking world will look like, a metaphor I might use would be a lovely pastoral farm attached to a giant retirement community where the young people have to toil hard in the fields, but manage to get enough to eat. So basically saying like young people just have to do more and more and more in order to service the elder people. Anything else you want to add to the sort of problems with the, uh, the slowing population before I talk about the other side of this argument? I think you touched on it briefly, but I do think that there's like a major cultural issue, which is what is occurring in Japan. And I think what could start occurring like across the world when when you don't have that same burgeoning next generation taking over certain cities and, and the flourishing culture. I mean, I guess there's the counter argument that that'll all kind of become more online and digitized. But, you know, I mean, I think that a healthy society has a robust next generation of young people who are doing new things and engaging with the world and supporting their elders. And that's just a, a model that we've culturally and statistically been moving further and further away from, which kind of scares me, I will admit. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second when we talk about solutions. But okay, now let me give the other side of this argument. So people who say that underpopulation is a good thing, or at least shrinking population, one is, I mean, they would point to the fact that population has been growing pretty steadily uh, throughout our lifetimes uh, and throughout much of the past hundred years and hundreds of years, it's always been growing. And so um, there's a deterministic argument, which essentially like humans will continue to grow. Uh, and even, you know, even assuming the projections that we have, like they're just going to be wrong. It's almost like a Moore's law of humans and, or that maybe we could afford to shrink a little bit because we consume a lot of natural resources. We're running out of arable land they'll say that Japan is a great place to live. Like Japan is being used as like this example of like this, you know, dystopia, but actually like on, on a lot of metrics, Japan is doing just fine. It's doing great. The other argument they'll make is that AI is set to automate away a lot of jobs. If you believe that, you probably want young, mm, less younger people because you don't want so many uh, unemployed people out there. So actually, if we're going to, if AI is going to eat into a certain percentage of jobs that exist and not create enough new ones for humans to do, then if the population shrank by that and amount, maybe you can you have the people. you can have the warm, tender care of an AI old age nurse at your bedside as you're taking your last breaths. That's just gonna be really <laughs> well, lovely. To be clear. <laughs> to be I'm clear, kidding. it doesn't have to be that the AI does that job. It could be like let's say the day AI I'm is kidding. better at data I'm entry kidding. and yada yada. I'm yada. just saying and then we're gonna need a lot of those jobs. Now taking care of grandma. Um and then the last one, which is interesting and, and kind of really, I think, probably to be left to economists, the debate is it's easier to generate per capita growth, like GDP, uh, if you have fewer people, like fewer people to spread around that wealth. Uh, those are the arguments they make. There's also a an argument around regional variation, right? Like if you're in Africa, for example, where there's 4.3 TFR, 
total fertility rate, you probably want it to go down. If you're in the United States and you're not anywhere near replacement level, you may want to probably get it up. Now, how do you get it up is the, is the tricky part. Now, No Smith talks about a couple of things. One is immigration. So like that's not net global increase in population, but for each country, that is the easiest and quickest way you can increase your population is by letting more people mm-hmm. in. And then he, he cites other data, which talks about like, all right, these called pro-natalist policies uh, and essentially looks at when you expand childcare uh, and uh, paid leave policies, you can make a dent in this. Now he's, he's clear to say it's not enough of a dent to erase uh, the gap in the United States, for example, but it is, uh, according to him, the sort of tried and true way uh, based on the data that we know right now to increase population. So basically he's saying three things, immigration, child care, expanded child care, and paid family leave, which is interesting, Ricky, because often the liberals are the ones saying population is too much, it's growing too much, yet their policies are actually the policies you'd need to grow population. So this is an interesting contradiction. Okay. Because in the interim, I'll say, I I don't really like mandating companies or I'd like to stay out of that business as much as possible. Um, but I would say, like, I'm still in that same camp that I was in last week when we talked about the childcare situation and the fact that we should have a child tax credit. Like, if this is benefiting our country, that the fact that you have are having more children and that you're participating in the economy at the same point in time, then then I think it's absolutely you should not have to pay in the same amount or at least should have some of the costs of, of child care offset by a reduction in your taxes, which I think is a less interventionalist way to do the same thing would be my opinion. I'm always in favor of fewer taxes, but yeah, that, I mean, I also think it's, it's, yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there are industries that are burgeoned around um, how difficult it is to to balance family and work life. And I, I think that that's a way that the government could actually make some meaningful progress. Yeah. One other you know solution that Noah Smith talks about is something we've talked about a little bit here, uh, which is what he calls social engineering, which is like new living arrangements that allow people to kind of raise kids collectively, which is, you know, more popular in other countries. Like you talk about Africa, for example, as a continent, um, you know, places, you know, I spent a couple summers in Ghana when I was in college, like, it reminds me a lot of true, which is true of India as well, which is the family unit is stronger and taking care of their own, whether it's the elderly or their kids. And that probably allows you to to have more kids. Like if you live in Brooklyn and it costs whatever it was that we said in our segment to to raise a kid in the United States, then there's a practical consideration there. Uh, the the other thing here to to look at is just public policy in the United States. Like in Wisconsin, you know, we were debating and you know, just, you know, dovetailing with what you just said, like, what would it look like to expand childcare? We know what the democratic version of this is, uh, which is essentially um, more government funded childcare. Uh, there's a debate playing out in Wisconsin where Governor Evers is a Democrat. It's called a special uh, session on childcare. He's, he's arguing for more increased childcare. You have a Republican legislature who circulated six separate bills who do the following. Uh, one is increase the maximum number of children group child care centers could care from. This gets to what we talked about in our child care segment where we were talking about how deregulated a little bit so people can create smaller units of child care and mm-hmm. people can be more entrepreneurial about this and solve their own problems. Uh, create a child care reimbursement account, so kind of like an ESA for child care. Lower the minimum age of assistant child care teachers uh, to 16, so allow teenagers to do this as a job. Change the number of unrelated children a certified child care provider can care for at one time. 
Uh, so essentially that gets to like creating these pockets of innovation where people can do the small versions of this. They create a new licensing uh, framework to make it easier to do these jobs and a loan fund to help providers renovate facilities. I have to say, Ricky, as the, you know, I know I'm the Democrat in this pod, but I can't argue with a single one of these bullet points. I think these are spot on. Yeah. As the independent on this pod, I might add, I'm not officially <laughs> affiliated, but um, I would say, yeah, I completely agree with pretty much all these moves here. I mean, it's just cutting the regulatory red tape. And I think the best case that we can make for the fact that parents are actually very effective at inventing their own solutions to these problems are um, the pod sort of things that happened in the pandemic and the kids who like, uh, I hope my aunt doesn't mind me sharing this, but she has twin boys and one kid um, during the lockdown in LA was in a pod and the other one has um, some learning difficulties. And so he was taught at home and did the Zoom thing. And like she said, the benefit that her one child got from being in that environment and was actually far beyond what he was getting in his very good school that he was going to. And so I think that um, the government should have a little more faith in people's ability to actually know what's best for their children. I, I realize that there are probably some truly concerning things that could arise out of a completely unregulated childcare system and, and corners cut that would be hugely disastrous and probably impact people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale more so than anyone else. Um, so I think there should be some guardrails somewhere, but certainly allowing for some innovation and getting the government as much out of people's business in terms of how they care for their children and balance their work life, child, family, situation is is generally a, a net positive. Yep. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on the Wisconsin legislative session. Uh, if you have good ideas, it seems like listeners have a lot to say on childcare. We've gotten a lot of voicemails. Uh, we had one listener who sent in a voicemail uh, call me out for saying that uh, we should have uh, a basic uh, right to childcare in this country because uh, I think the words I used were um, that so people could be quote unquote productive members of society. Uh, Sorry about that word choice. Our listener did not like that because it basically implied that people who are taking care of their kids at home are not productive members of society. So sorry, listener, and any other listeners who are staying. I'm sorry, home if do I had that. caught um, that, I would have fixed it in real time. But I, I somehow yeah, I, that I might. I, I didn't go back and listen <laughs> to what I say, so I just trust the listener for saying that. And, and I, I, I did not mean to imply that people who stay home aren't productive members of society. I think is what is uh, implied by this segment. And the last one is that actually these are the most important jobs we have, whether you do it on your own or you do it for other people. And hopefully more states follow Wisconsin and allow people to help each other more easily start businesses to help each other. With that, we have one more voicemail. Uh, this is from a longtime listener, Mark, uh, talking about the Department of Education. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Mark, a longtime listener. Really enjoy the show. And I was just listening to your segment on education and should the DOE be abolished. And what was going through my head the whole time was why are other countries that are ranked higher and the rankings seem to vary depending on who you ask? But it, it seemed like the focus was on what do we spend this money on? And it, it kind of reminded me of the situation lots of times, even in business organizations, where you're collecting all this information, all these reports and all this data, 
but what are you really doing with it? And if frankly, uh, and the perception sometimes is it's a lot of I gotcha stuff, you know, is Mississippi not complying with something or is, you know, whatever. And what about what in the data says, why are we not as good as other places? And what in the data says uh, we could be better? And I'm, I'm hoping Robbie has some insights, you know, on, um, is the focus more on gotcha stuff at the DOE, um, if you get past the administering loans, or is it really focused on trying to determine, you know, what are the best practices, how do we implement those best practices in other places, how do we pass that information on, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the other thing I would say is um, sometimes it seems like, you know, frankly, a little bit of a cop-out when people say, well, the Scandinavian countries, for example, they're small and they're, in quotes, homogeneous, Okay, so is Singapore, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, rather than discounting that, what can we learn from that? And then the other thing, to maybe some of Ricky's points, if you went to a federalist-type way and said states would do their own thing, what process would there be for best practices from state A to be implemented in state B? Because all the politicians say is, you know, we're not New York or we're not California or we're not Texas or whatever. So it almost implies that they're saying we don't care what the other states are doing. And so you have to have some practice or some methodology for best practices to be shared. So I would really be curious for both your reactions to that because um, it's, it's an area of quite a bit of interest, and it seems like we spend way too much time on, you know, was some small school district in Mississippi committing a civil rights violation, and not enough on why can't our kids read, write, and do arithmetic. And um, I, I would be curious to y'all's reaction. Thanks a lot, guys. There's a lot of good stuff in this voicemail. On the late, the last point around, like getting you know state A to learn from state B. I think historically states have been pretty good at this. I think the politics lately have gotten in the way from red states learning from blue states more than they should. But it used to be. I, I did a good interview with Margaret Spellings, uh, who was George W. Bush's education secretary. I, did, I talked to her a couple weeks ago, where she talked about like in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, uh, governors throughout the South were really good at sharing best practices across the political divide. So you had Bill Clinton in Arkansas, Lamar Alexander in Tennessee, who's a Republican, Jim Hunt in, I think, North Carolina. And you had these these governors who were just wonking out on education and, and largely reaching a consensus that became the national consensus. And some people may say it's a bad consensus, but by and large, like it was actually a bottom-up approach to innovation uh, that then drove the top down, which is a fascinating story. Uh, so on the sort of states learning from state stuff, there has been a good history there. Right now, I'd say states like are generally good at, for sharing best practices within their parties, but not across parties enough. Uh, I would say, too, on the, on the question of the data that the Department of Education tracks, there is so much data that they track. Um, now, my sense is there's an easy way, the easier way for everybody to be required to feed into one database so that we just all have information. And that means that like, we know how many kids are in the country. We know uh, what their ages are. We know how many kids are in special education. We know what the average spend, like there's just all this data that helps everybody. It helps researchers. It helps people having public policy debates, et cetera. And yes, maybe it helps the government, quote unquote, hold accountable states, which we, we come back to. I just think they make it way too burdensome. It's not streamlined. Uh, and it's requiring too much time. And uh, it's often connected to murky and aggressive 
enforcement, compliance, et cetera, that is often not connected to student achievement uh, and is more about power than it is about effectiveness. And yes, like this, this listener says, like, yes, they're going to catch certain bad things, but at what cost are we doing all of this stuff at the federal level? And I, I tend to be skeptical of the sheer enormity and complexity and messiness of the federal role right now. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add to that. I agree with your takes. Um, I would just say in, in part of my, if I were president, cutting back and slashing the DOE proposal that I had in terms of cutting down by 25% incrementally, I would also require that all of these studies and and surveys that we do actually have like a, a point of actionability at the end of them. Because if they don't, then why are we doing them and why are we spending money on them? And I think that we've kind of oftentimes in like the big engine of the government machine that keeps worrying, we kind of forget that that needs to be something at the end. And if they're no longer actionable and if it's no longer a a study or survey that is actually going to meaningfully impact people's lives or, or legislation, then enough of that. All right. Well, I believe that's all we have today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 321 We'll be back here on Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>